Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm George Hammond, chair of the Humanities Forum, which organized tonight's event. It's tonight in Germany, that is, and that's where we're uh, directly uh, live streaming this from, Frankfurt, Germany, and in San Francisco, of course. This is one of uh, over 400 programs we've done since COVID-19 has begun without an audience, um, trying to bring you as many of the ideas as we can that we're used to doing right here in San Francisco live. So tonight we have Sabina Hossenfelder, um, a theoretical physicist who works at the Frankfurt Institute for Advanced Study, uh, and she is a research fellow in the Superfluid Dark Matter Group. She's also uh, a very early adopter of YouTube. Uh, she started her channel in 2007 and has over 250,000 subscribers and over 17 million views. Just for the perspective of the people who are Commonwealth Club members, uh, the Commonwealth Club, with 400 to 500 speakers a year, uh, also adopted the YouTube channel in 2007. And after all these years, we have 90-some thousand subscribers and 15 million viewers. So, Sabina, you have done uh, just as well as the entire club has in the time. So that's, that's a very impressive. And you, you speak all about lots of different topics, but it's almost all about physics. Uh, other than your singing, which is a great side, side bit. <laughs> so I want to I wanna read something. We're, we're going to start at the latest news in theoretical physics, which is, of course, the research about the muon and whether the muon is upsetting things. Because in the articles uh, about this, um, whether you know, this, these muon, this muon research at Fermilab is going to upset the standard model, um, several times I came across this quote. Sabino Hussenfelder, a physicist at the Frankfurt Institute for Advanced Study, tweeted, of course the possibility exists that it's new physics, but I wouldn't bet on it. <laughs> so why not? Why, why wouldn't you bet on this having an effect on, on new physics? Well, maybe to give you some context, this anomaly has been there for 20 years, and so it's basically been with me throughout my whole career. And I've had some time to think about it. And the thing with the mu and g minus two anomaly is that it's pitching an experiment against a terribly complicated calculation in the standard model of particle physics. And there are just, you know, there are many things that can go wrong with this calculation. <clears throat> and uh, there, there have always been some parts in this calculation that have been kind of suspicious <laughs> mm -hmm. that people have tried to improve upon. And I suspect what's going on is that someone somewhere along the line is underestimating the uncertainty. Um, so the uncertainty on the theoretical prediction is just too small, which is why the theoretical prediction is outside uh, the measurement result. Mm -hmm. Well, that's... It's an interesting thing for outsiders to, to, to watch. I mean, you in your book, uh, Lost in Math... Um, how beauty leads uh, physics astray. I, I, I thought, first of all, this is a nice repeat of something the ancient Greek philosophers discussed, which is, what do we pursue, beauty or truth? It's beauty versus truth. And you're, you're basically coming down all these years later in the physics area on that we should not let beauty lead us astray. Um, and you have a lot of great examples of it, and you talk about the standard model of fundamental particle physics. Um, and, and the fact that that hasn't made much progress in the last few decades. And, and you wonder whether it's, it's this obsession with beauty which is getting in the way. 
Uh, one, one question I have about that is uh, both of the famous uh, recent uh, ones, besides the muon, the Higgs boson, they're both particles that disintegrate fairly rapidly. Um, and so it's kind of interesting why they're in a group of fundamental particles, uh, because fundamental particles aren't supposed to disintegrate into smaller pieces, right? I mean, they're supposed to be the fundamental pieces that everything is built from. Or, or do I have that wrong? Well, they don't disintegrate. Uh, it, they, they decay into other particles. And um, the, in, in a nutshell, the reason is that they're too massive. So they can decay into particles with smaller mass, and that's what they do. Uh, but they're still fundamental particles in the sense that they're not them, they, they don't have a substructure. So they can decay, but they're not made of smaller things, at least not for all we presently know. You know, it, it could always be that at some point um, we'll find some. But um, actually, you know, in particle physics term, the, the muon is a, is a long-lived particle. You know, it's, it's no comparison to the Higgs boson. So, so measuring something with the muon is vastly easier uh, than measuring something with the Higgs. Uh, you, you said something very interesting. You said that it, it decays into other particles, but it's not made of something else. Isn't isn't that isn't the decay into something which is also fundamental particles? It, it doesn't mean that it was made up of those particles in the first place. No, it doesn't. It's um, what the decay means is that it interacts with those particles. So you can you can also, in principle, have the same process backwards. Um, it's like uh, you know, if you have a if you have a a path that forks, um, that's basically how we describe it in terms of Feynman diagrams. So you have one particle coming in and then two particles coming out. But you you could have come in from any path to the junction and go out in the two other ends. Uh, so so all these possible. Uh, iterations actually do occur in nature. It's just that some of them are more likely than others. So um, the heavy particles are likely to decay into lighter ones. Basically, it's, be it's because um, entropy increase. For for uh, our uh, listeners, uh, something a little bit more that they're used to. <clears throat> how, how does that sort of analysis compare to, say, water made up of hydrogen and oxygen? Uh, both hydrogen and oxygen are are atoms. They're 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 pretty long-lasting atoms, and even when they come together in water, that's a fairly long-lasting molecule. But what you're saying is that water is is not really made up of, or not not if the analogy were correct, it's not. But if the analogy were correct, is it like water is made up of or decays into hydrogen and oxygen? And hydrogen and oxygen can also go in the reverse order and uh, become water, as opposed to that water is made up of it. I'm, I'm using it as an analogy because um, I understand that it's not accurate about water, but in the, in the case of, of uh, these fundamental particles that are more massive, uh, it would seem that you, you could look at it both ways. So, so there's a reason why not looking at it that way, right? Yeah, you're, you're right. I, I understand that it can be confusing. So, I mean, to begin with, water, <laughs> it luckily, usually doesn't just decay, right? <laughs> um, but the thing is, with with water, with a water molecule, we can actually see the substructure, like if you, if you do a spectrograph or something like this. Um, so you can actually tell uh, it's not one homogeneous blob or something. And that's exactly what we don't see for the elementary particles. 
as, as I said, for all we currently <laughs> can tell, uh, they don't have any substructure. That's why we call them elementary. Got it. Now, that, that goes back. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. Well, I'm going to go back to what we know. First of all, we wanna t I want to talk about what you find um, uh, uncomfortable about the current ideas um, that makes you doubt them or makes you wonder where we're going to go with them. Um, and then I'd like to go back to what we really do know. Um, and atomic theory, I think, is one of those things. So we'll go back to the Greeks in a little while. But um, one of the things that you talk about is fine-tuned versus natural in, in, in analyzing theories. And uh, I thought it was a really great analysis uh, for people who aren't familiar with that. Um, could you explain why that approach, which is related to the beauty, your beauty argument, why it makes you feel uncomfortable about what's going on? Yeah, so maybe I should start with briefly explaining what, what all this talk about naturalness and fine-tuning is about. So uh, in theoretical physics, we deal with theories that are basically pieces of mathematics. Uh, and we use those to make predictions, for example, for the decay rate of some particles, stuff like that. And these theories um, all contain parameters, um, and some of those are dimensionless, which, so they don't have units, they're just numbers. And all these dimensionless numbers in the theories are supposed to be of order one, so which means close by one, but not exactly one, not very large, not very small. If that's the case, then the theory is called natural. So, so that's the definition. And um, theoretical physicists uh, like theories that are natural, and um, I call this a particular type of beauty. And so a theory that's fine-tuned is just a theory that isn't natural. Um, so the idea is that you have to pick a particular number very, very precisely. Like, uh, say you have a small number that's 0.00003 or something. The idea is that you, you would have to, you know, fine, finely tune it to this 0003. Uh, that's, that's where the idea comes from. And now the thing is that um, fine-tuning arguments can be good arguments uh, in certain circumstances. Um, if, um, you know, the, the, the uh, usual example would be uh, a pencil balance on its tip. Um, you would find that very unnatural in the sense that you would have to very finely tune the position of the pen and all the motions of the air molecules around it, that, that kind of thing. And you would correctly conclude the probability that the pen just happens to be balanced on its pencil, happens to be balanced on its tip, is vanishingly small. Therefore, it's very likely it's held in place by something. So, so that's how a good argument from naturalness or, or fine-tuning works. Now, the problem in the foundations of physics is that people use these fine-tuning arguments for cases where you cannot possibly know anything about the probability distribution. Um, so when we're talking about the constants of nature that, that appear in these theories, so where we might be talking about say the fine structure constant or the mass of the Higgs boson, uh, that kind of thing, then we just can't make any statements about whether or not that particular value of the constant is likely. And uh, that's why I say these arguments are not scientific arguments. 
And if they're not scientific arguments, well, then what are they? Uh, so, you know, some people have told me, well, they're, they're metaphysical criteria. <laughs> and I think ph philosophically, that's probably the right word to use. But I, but I call them arguments from beauty, because that's, I think, the way that physicists think about them and also where they uh, originally came from. Well, you, you, in talking about those theories and different possibilities, uh, you, you make a, a really good point that f there's no proof for any theory. People uh, in, in the popular press throw around the word proof all the time. Um, and I know scientists perfectly understand this, but I think it's good for the rest of the people to understand proof is only in a few th areas in mathematics. It's, there is no physical theory that's ever been proven. There's been reliable evidence that we should keep looking in this direction. Maybe explain the distinction there a little bit to people so that, um, so that this idea that scientists don't believe in the, that it's, anything is proven um, about any of these theories. Yeah, of course, it's it's somewhat an issue about the colloquial use of language. You know, if we, yeah. we colloquially use words like proof or truth, um, th they don't mean exactly the same thing as we would mean with them yeah, yeah. Uh, in, 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 <laughs> in science. So um, I would say that really the only thing you can strictly speaking prove are mathematical relations. And that cannot contain any statements about uh, nature. So if we have a theory of nature, like the standard model, maybe, or the concordance model, which describes uh, cosmology, uh, that kind of thing, then we can collect evidence in, the fa in favor of the theory. Um, so we would say it's been well confirmed, but we will never ultimately be able to prove that the theory is actually correct. There could always be a next measurement that contradicts the theory, and then we'll have to go and look for a better theory. <laughs> so that's how <laughs> science works. Yeah, in your, in your book, you said, uh, uh, on the opposite end of the, of the proving, you said you, you cannot falsify a theory, but you can implausify it. Um, and, and I think that's the other element of it. I think that's an, uh, another thing to explain about how science approaches this. Uh, maybe, maybe you can expand out a little bit on that idea. Yeah, that's right. So. There are some cases where you can actually falsify a theory, but they're very, very rare because um, if you get some kind of measurements that contradicts your original theory, you can always twiddle with the theory. Um, and, you know, that's something that scientists shouldn't do, but they do it all the time. And it's not necessarily wrong because you learn something from the measurement so then you go back to the drawing board and you try to improve your theory um, the the problem is that what happens is that it makes the theories more and more complicated more and more arcane uh, you could you could say and at some point what happens is that people just lose interest if, if you have a theory that's been fixed over and over and over again um, you know may, maybe like the, the thing with the epicycles um, then it becomes increasingly less plausible. And in particular, if there's a better theory that explains the data simpler, then practitioners will just go over and start using the better theory. Uh, your use of uh, your reference to the epicycle theory is at least something that a lot of people who pay attention to this, even from the outside, uh, know about um, as an example where the mathematics 
was ever more elaborate and, and, and fairly accurate in predicting where the planets were going. Um, and that Copernicus, when he first uh, tried to rearrange it, uh, that his numbers were actually less accurate or his math was less accurate until the elliptical idea. And so maybe, it, it, because everybody kind of uses that, why don't you explain where, how, it's a good example of where the math led in one direction and was more precise actually than the ideas coming back in another area. Yeah, I, I mean, you already said it, so I'm not sure what you oh, okay, want uh, to add. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a good example of uh, how big a difference a simplification can make, even though <laughs> it, it, people at the time thought that ellipses are ugly, right? I mean, the one of the major reasons they kept doing these cycles around cycles around cycles is that they had this idea that circles are the most perfect geometric shapes that you can think of. And so certainly if you can do it with circles, uh, then please do it with circles. Um, but from, from what the calculation and effort is concerned, uh, it just becomes very time-consuming. Time so from a purely pragmatic point of view, um, it, it made sense to switch to ellipses. And I think today, you know, if you ask any astronomer, are ellipses ugly? <laughs> <laughs> they would just laugh at you, right? Uh, so, so our conception of beauty has entirely changed there. Right. Uh, I think it's, they would say it's much more beautiful because it make, it's clear, more beautiful. I mean, it's, it's what we're looking for, an answer. Um, and I think when we're looking for an answer, an answer that makes a lot of sense is beautiful to us all, all right away. It's an interesting part of the, uh, to go back to it again, the, the argument between beauty and truth. It, it's rather uh, an extreme form of chutzpah to believe that our uh, intuition and our ideas about beauty uh, would be more accurate rather than trying to, to, to figure out what's really out there. Um, and I think you, you bring up the point really well in your book about how scientists move in, in a direction and within a certain amount of time they're so uh, uh, emotionally attached to their theories or whatever that they always want that theory to win. It's a normal human thing, but it doesn't move us forward to trying to figure out what our reality is. I mean, we're, we're, we're all trying to share an understanding of our shared reality. That, it's not easy. Um, but in any case, we have millions of people working on it now, and we're making more progress, it seems, more quickly. But some of the old ideas about how to go about it, emotional ideas, are, are, are there getting in our way. I, that's a, a great point that you made in your book. Um, you, you mentioned, I think, Kurt, while maybe it was uh, or or somebody who said that if he if it came down to an argument between beauty and truth he would probably lean towards beauty in in his uh, you know decisions and there are plenty of famous physicists like that. Um, another uh, thing that you bring up in your book um, is uh, you mentioned that Max Planck uh, said you know over a hundred years ago uh, that there are twenty five orders of magnitude uh, between what we can see and and what what he thought, anyway, the, the, the substan substantive reality was. Why don't you talk about that anyway, and how far we've progressed? Because you're talking about that we see the Higgs boson and the muon as um, homogenous and, and undividable. Um, but we're at what level of order of magnitude on that, on that scale that he was talking about? Oh, um, yeah, that's right. So M Max Planck had the great insight you could say that there's a particularly <laughs> i dare to say natural 
uh, set of units that you can assemble from the already known fundamental constants. And so those are now called the Planck units. Um, there's a Planck mass and there's a Planck time and, and Planck length. And um, so the reason that Max Planck uh, introduced them was because, and that was literally his argument, aliens would also use them. <laughs> you find that in the paper. <laughs> and so uh, because they're just composed of these uh, fundamental constants that you can just extract uh, from measurements. Um, but their relevance today is that you can estimate at which energies or distances the effects of quantum gravity should become important. And that happens to be on the order of magnitude where the Planck energy is. And so that's about uh, 15 orders of magnitude beyond what even the Large Hadron Collider can probe. So it's it's really a long, long way to go. <laughs> And you, you, you talk about this in, in other ways, too, that, okay, well, x-rays will take us so far, and then we need a different method because at that point, it's, to, you know, it's, it's affecting things there on the same scale. The, the light waves are on the same scale as the photons. It re reminded me that if you, if, you, if you had a fundamental particle, um, and it really was the building block, uh, then how, how would you see it? How would you look at it? Because we, we look at everything, or perceive almost everything, by throwing many, many smaller things at it and, and, and then having them bounce off if we just think about our daily lives with photons bouncing off of us. So it would seem to me that you, we would always, uh, the, the atom would always, or the, the, not the atom, but the, the fundamental particle would always be outside our reach because we'd only be able to throw another atom at it That's as, if it's as small as it gets. Well, we, so if we use something like the Large Hadron Collider, we don't throw atoms, but protons, right? So, so the Large Hadron Collider um, throws protons at protons. Um, you can also do this with leptons uh, if you want. So it actually has, dis has an advantage because protons are themselves made of smaller particles. So pro protons are not fundamental. They're made of, of quarks and gluons. So actually you're distributing the energy that you pump into the particle and all these uh, subparticles. But the way that we're looking for new particles is that we just pump a lot of energy in that collision. And um, if you have an energy that's above the mass of the new particle that you're looking for, you have a chance to actually make it. And that's how particle colliders work. You just pump a lot of energy in a collision, and then everything that can happen will happen. <laughs> and if there are new particles in that energy range, um, you'll see them. Probably not directly in the sense that they'll decay long before they uh, run into the detector, but you'll see the traces of the decay, and, and that's pretty much how all LHC physics works. Um, I, I used uh, the word atom in a way that was just uh, inaccurate. I was going back to the atomic theory and saying, if you have a fundamental particle that's indestructible uh, as, as part of the theory, um, and, and it is uh, it, the smallest thing that there is. Whatever that is, we don't know, but we're, we're looking at this one level with the protons and, and uh, the quarks, etc. Uh, but whatever the fundamental, actual fundamental level is, uh, that would be that there would be nothing smaller than to take a look at it with. 
You, you wouldn't have anything to be able to, to, to perceive it with. So it, it seems to me that, that that level is always going to be um, theoretically understandable, but not perceivable or not. You, you would never get a collider that could do it because you have to. Uh, it's just 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 a, just a thought off to the side because it seems like the smallest thing. We're so used to learning things by throwing many many things at it and then getting the details. And if it's all the smallest thing, how would you ever be able to do that? It's, it's, it's theoretically not possible. It seems like. Well, so so the thing is that if we are looking for particles like colliders, we actually don't see them directly, as I just said. So so they could be very small. They can be smaller than the thing you're 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 trying to probe them with. Like, uh, you know, it's it's kind of difficult to define a size for an elementary particle. But if you wish, in some sense, the Higgs boson is smaller than. Uh, protons. So in some sense, we do see smaller particles with bigger ones by pumping that much energy um, into a small region of space-time. Oh, great. I'll have to drop that argument. <laughs> so so um, in your, in your uh, um, analysis in your book, you also, uh, well, you gave a very good example, I thought, of where, and this is a, a totally different subject, where special relativity and, and quantum mechanics have a problem. And you talk about the fact that in quantum mechanics there can be two locations, but, uh, but because an electron, why don't you explain that? I, I, I thought that was one of the best explanations of why we're having trouble uh, merging relativity theory and quantum mechanics, and I, everyone hears about that. Um, so I think a good example is useful. Yeah, right. Uh, I should put ahead. So the the problem is that we have two um, different theories in the foundations of physics. Uh, one is Einstein's theory of general relativity, according to which uh, gravity is caused by the curvature of space time. So that's this whole story with the trampoline, uh, you know, with the or with the bent rubber sheet or, or what have you. So and and that's what we call a classical theory or a or a non quantum theory. Um, and then we have the standard model of particle physics that we already talked about, where the particles have quantum properties. And uh, that's a collection of different things. Uh, most importantly, it's that they obey the uncertainty principle. So there, there are certain combinations of observables that you can't measure simultaneously. And then um, they can do weird things, like being in two places at the same time. Now, that brings up the following, <laughs> the following problem. If you have a particle like an electron, say, um, that is in two places at the same time, uh, we know that the electron has a mass, so it has a gravitational pull. But if the particle is in two places, then where does the gravitational pull go? The gravitational theory that Einstein put forward just can't give us an answer because it doesn't have quantum properties. So it's an embarrassingly simple question, like what's the gravitational uh, field of an electron in such a superposition? But we don't have an answer. The, the current theories just can't, they just can't answer the question. Right. Um, and, and unless something changes in one or the other theory, it, it, it's not going to. Not, not going to be answerable, right? Um, 
if we go back a little bit um, to say uh, we have these theories, and uh, before I do that, in, in, in talking about this, um, one of the analogies that some physicists have used is that we're like creating a map about reality. I mean, obviously, if you had to reproduce reality, you're, you, you'd have to recreate the entire universe. So what we're doing is sort of mapping what's going on um, and trying to, to analyze it that way. And I was wondering, you know, to what extent, you know, because it's useful for um, calculations, etc., that the relativity theory and quantum mechanics are both a way of mapping things that we can't perceive directly uh, rather than an accurate idea about what's really happening. For example, quantum mechanics is, is uh, about so many extremely small uh, particles, and it seems uh, one of the best methods we have of predicting uh, what can come out of that. But we really don't know what's really happening um, in the individual cases that all add up to trillions of things that then we can quantify. So is quantum mechanics more like a map or, or do people feel that it is uh, an accurate description of the physical reality behind the, behind the trillions of, of uh, projects that are going on? I guess it depends on who you ask, <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> that's the, the thing with quantum mechanics is that people can't agree on what it actually means. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think what, what uh, you may be alluding to with uh, talking about maps is that you, you can have a purely uh, instrumental perspective uh, on what's going on with quantum mechanics. Uh, you know, it's, it's just a mathematical mechanism and you put in a question and out comes an answer and then you go and measure it. And it agrees with the, the measurement, agrees with the prediction, and you can say, well, that's a good theory. And that's certainly the case, you know, just uh, operationally, quantum mechanics is an extremely successful theory. Like if you think back of the uh, mu g minus two that we talked about in the very beginning, so that that's an, I mean, we're, we're, we're talking about this disagreement, but the maybe more remarkable thing is is the stunning agreement be between the theoretical prediction and the measurement up to the tenth digit after the point in this g right. minus two, and then there's the eleventh digit where you know they're they're like We're arguing, that's, yeah. that's <laughs> off by a little bit, uh, but I mean, to me the remarkable part is that that it works so dramatically well. So and there's no doubt that it works well, but but then there's the question: What does it actually mean? Uh, and that's where people disagree. So um, yeah, as you say, um, it's not easy to just naively assign reality to the elements of quantum mechanics. Uh, notably, that's the wave function, um, that thing that's normally denoted psi. <laughs> and, uh, if you've ever read anything about quantum mechanics, you've you've, you've seen psi. Um, so the, the psi is um, what we use to describe the system, which is just a wake word for whatever it is that we want to make a prediction for. Uh, so it could be, for example, your lecture or the, the muon or, I don't know, um, the water molecule or something. So everything has a wave function. And now the weird thing about the wave function is that we, we can't observe it we only observe um, the measurement outcome with a certain probability that is predicted by the wave function. And so, so it's really hard to assign reality to the wave function. It doesn't really make a terrible lot of sense. And there's, there's been a lot of 
discussion uh, starting the early days of quantum mechanics um, just exactly what happens with the wave function if you don't look at it <laughs> so, so <laughs> this, this old question uh, and uh, Bohr was of the opinion well it's just a question that you're not supposed to ask uh, right. and, and Einstein <laughs> didn't like it and then it went on like this for several decades and basically <laughs> we're still asking the same question today yeah, yeah, but it's it, we're used to that in other theories outside of science, where they don't look behind that door because we don't ask those questions. Um, but obviously, science is supposed to be different than that. Um, we one of the things I think that that the history of science um, is, is it's unclear because people take the idea that we've made so much progress in the last two hundred years in so many areas of of, of science, especially in physics. I mean the the whole idea about what's going on in the universe is so much different than 200 years ago. And we're quite confident about it. It's not proven, uh, but it's very reliable evidence that you know, these stars are hundreds of millions of miles away, uh, hundreds of millions of light years away from us, etc. So uh, instead of a dome over, over the Earth, you know, we've, we've gotten a pretty good idea about what's going on. And I, I don't know why it hasn't ruined astrology uh, in the meantime, because that's, a, that's supposed to be you know, based upon the dome. But in any case... Um, if you have that progress in any field, people get very overconfident about the ideas that, that, that they're doing because they're so successful. It happens in politics, it happens in science, it happens in, in anything. Um, and so we're, we're sitting here, and I think a useful function, um, I mean, you, you, you talk about the philosophical analysis uh, being missing sometimes. A useful function is to look back at all the ideas that we've collected and how recently we've actually done those ideas. Now, there's one idea that's stayed a long time, which is the atomic theory. It's been around 2,500 years. There was no, there was no uh, ep evidence for it there other than thinking. Um, but the idea was for, all of, for this world to be discrete, there must be discrete particles that make it up. And, and there's an argument about it. And they must be they must be homogeneous and so on. As, as we now talk about the fundamental particles we're looking at, um, we have pretty much the same criteria without saying uh, that they're different shapes. So, so if that's the start, um, it takes a long time before we have another idea that's still fundamental in physics uh, that's, that's held on. Is there any other idea from prior to Newton and, and Copernicus and so on? Is there any other idea from ancient times that's uh, uh, other than the math that was done? But is there any other physics idea that, that as a concept, uh, is still intact? Because the ideas of motion, all that uh, that Aristotle had, most of his stuff got overturned um, by, by new information. Well, I guess it depends on where you start counting physics. Uh, I mean, yeah. a, a lot of the theories that we use are based on geometry in one way or the other, which right. is a re really, really ancient idea. And you, you could say we've just built build up on that. Mm. But I mean, you know, on the other hand, you could say, well, that was mathematics. Um, so it's a little bit right. ambiguous, I suppose. Right. Okay. So let's, I mean, for example, uh, the idea that we have uh, matter and energy or that there's forces that we divide up our reality into matter and energy. Um, that idea is what, three, 400 years old, something like that. <laughs> You're asking the wrong person. I'm, oh, okay, I'm, fine. I, I am a but, physicist and not a historian. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, so it, it, it just seems to me that some of these ideas like forces, matter, energy, I, I look at matter and energy and I say, well, you know, we have an equation 
uh, from Einstein that they are convertible into each other, and we work with that conversion. Um, but it seems, it seems to me that if you had uh, water was con uh, convertible from ice to uh, water to water vapor and so on and so forth, that you would look for something more fundamental like uh, the molecule H2O that, that, that gives us the basis of this. And so when I see the, the, that equation, what I see is maybe there's something more fundamental uh, that looks like energy when it's going the speed of light relative to us and looks like mass uh, otherwise. Uh, for example, neutrinos. Uh, for a long time, they were thought to be massless. Um, but but uh, in the 90s, it was demonstrated that they, were, that they actually had a very tiny amount of mass. So it, it seems to me that their speed uh, relative to us may be a factor and that maybe another idea that's not either mass or energy might be more useful for, for uh, arguing about this rather than talking about, talking about it uh, from those concepts. But anyway, those concepts are relatively new. Um, and uh, it's interesting that they stick with us, like force. We, we think there, there's some fundamental forces. The four, there's four fundamental forces, or are there five now? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> by my counting, we're still at four. We're still at four. Um, though, I mean, I mean, I think that's a fair case to make that gravity isn't really a force. It's just that we 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 are used to calling it a force, and in certain approximation, we can recover the force that Newton was talking about. But it's kind of the whole point of uh, Einstein's general relativity is to say that. Gravity is not a force. <laughs> it's just that space-time is curved, and we we move in this curved space-time, and that makes it look like a force, but it's not really a force. But but maybe if I may, uh, I want to add one one thing about what you say about um, energy and mass and so on. So so the, these are fairly um, old concepts, of course, but exactly what scientists mean by those words has only clarified, you know, over the course of centuries. And, uh, you know, to some extent, maybe we, we still don't entirely understand, uh, especially what mass is. There's an argument to be ha had, had about this. But, but just because the word has been in use for a long time doesn't mean nothing's changed. And um, so about um, the uh, energy and mass. Um, so, of course, they, they are related by uh, motion. So this, this equation that's often quoted E equals MC squared, it actually, it misses a term that includes the momentum or the velocity, um, if, if you want to have, have a simpler explanation. Um, so strictly speaking, it's a relation between the energy, the momentum, and the mass. So in some sense, if you take the energy and the velocity of the thing together, um, Actually, you have to subtract it, but <laughs> subtlety. Uh, um, it, it, you get the mass or the invariant mass of the thing. Um, so, so that's the that's the idea behind Einstein's uh, equations. So, yes, the, these things are very closely related to each other: the motion and the energy and the mass. And and I, from what you just said, it made me uh, understand that maybe that's how neutrinos were discovered to have mass by 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 focusing more on their fast momentum that there was still something left over once you could measure it. Um, because at the time, you know, if, if you go back to the 70s, you know, neutrinos were considered massless, uh, just like photons are considered massless. So um, that, that, that 
analysis using momentum made it clear that there was something left, just like you, you, there's, we measure things precisely enough that now that we know by measuring more precisely there's still something left and that must be the invariant mass. The evidence for the neutrino masses comes from elsewhere, but you're, you're right that neutrinos were originally uh, considered to be massless just because the mass is so small they couldn't measure it. Uh, the, the reason they um, came up with the idea that uh, neutrinos or something like neutrinos had to exist was that uh, energy and momentum are conserved quantities. And there were certain reactions which they saw where it wasn't conserved. And, uh, you know, the, then <laughs> then you have the option, you can either throw out uh, this uh, conservation law, which screws up all of physics, basically, <laughs> uh, or you conjecture a new particle that carries away the energy and momentum. And, and that's how the neutrino was originally introduced, I think, by Pauli, if I remember correctly. And then it, but then it took like 35 years uh, or something for them to actually be able to measure it because it interacts so weakly. And since it's so light, uh, they couldn't actually see any signs of it having a mass. Um, the the um, knowledge that they actually need to have mass comes from an entirely different phenomenon, um, which is the neutrino oscillation. So there, there are three different types of neutrino. There, there's one neutrino for each of um, the leptons. So there's an electron neutrino and um, a muon neutrino and a tau neutrino. And those can change into each other. So that's called neutrino oscillation, and it's been observationally confirmed. But the thing is, this can only happen if the neutrinos have different masses. Um, so even if you assume that one of them has zero mass, then the other ones need to have some mass. Uh, so, so that's how we know they need to have masses. We still don't really know what the absolute mass is. So strictly speaking, we only know the difference between the masses. The differences. Um, you mentioned, uh, Polly, the person who, who uh, theorized that there must be neutrinos was a little embarrassed about it because it didn't, you know, right? And I, I thought that it's always an interesting part of science. Um, so he found it embarrassing because it just wasn't proved for a long time and wondered whether he just, you know, was a flight of fancy on his part. Um, what about your area, dark matter? Um, it's a, uh, give us a little bit of idea about how this idea uh, arose and what's it, what's it, what's it, it's based on, and uh, and what the evidence is for it. Yeah, so so dark matter is a long-standing puzzle in astronomy, and it's been known since the 1930s. Uh, so the issue is that um, we have general relativity and we have all these particles in the standard model and we can combine them to make predictions for what we should see there in the cosmos, you know, how galaxies should look like, how they should behave, how structures should form and so on and so forth. And what we actually see doesn't match with the prediction. And uh, the first person to actually see this was um, Fritz Zwicky, who um, looked at galaxy clusters. So these are um, clusters of several hundred up to a thousand or so galaxies that move around each other. So they're gravitationally bound. Um, they're bound together by their own gravitational pull. And now the thing is that um, the average velocity of the galaxies in a cluster depends on the total mass in the cluster. So if you measure this average velocity, you can tell how much mass there is in the cluster. And Zwicky 
realized that there wasn't remotely enough mass that he could see that would also explain the velocities of the galaxies. And he said, well, there has to be something else uh, in, in those clusters. And he called that dunkle materie, dark matter. And so this is where it came from. And then in the 60s, 70s and so on, there were increasingly more observations um, not from galaxy clusters, but also from galaxies where there's a similar issue. They, they rotate too fast. So this is where Vera Rubin uh, left her mark. Um, and I think around this time, people realize that it's a systematic thing. You know, if you observe one cluster and another cluster, you can say, well, maybe there's something odd with these clusters, uh, right? But uh, so they came to realize that that's a very systematic thing. We This happens everywhere. And so this idea of dark matter gradually solidified. And, um, you know, as... Uh, astronomy advanced, there were more and more observations that fit to the pattern, uh, gravitational lenses, the cosmic microwave background, uh, structure formation, and so on and so forth. And in all these cases, the idea that there is some dark matter, which which we can't see, and that needs to have particular properties. For example, it, it can't, uh, it shouldn't clump the same way that our normal matter clumps, that just wouldn't work. It has to form rather fluffy clouds or halos as they're, they're, they're called. It, it worked quite well for a long time. But in the past, you know, two, three decades or something, it's become more difficult um, to make dark matter work just because the data has become uh, better. So uh, the shortcomings of this dark matter hypothesis have become more and more obvious. Mm -hmm. You, you mentioned something in there that you also talk about in your book, um, which is the sort of fluffy clouds. Uh, uh, that is, that there's these spherical uh, objects that have dense centers and, and uh, less and less dense outer areas, but they're all connected with each other. It's all part of the same system. And um, it reminded me that, that when the atom was first described, it was kind of described as a little solar system, you know, um, and, and that, that was what they analogized it to. Um, but then it was said, well, it's much more complicated than that. But, but if our solar system uh, includes all of, the, all of the fluffy parts of the cloud, which, which we, we see uh, now, I mean, we can tell that there's a lot of uh, dust, a lot of small particles, a lot of comets. There's all, all kinds of other things going on other than the planets in the simple structure. Um, it, it, it makes me wonder whether that's not like one of the most fundamental structures that we have everywhere, no matter what the scale is, that there is, you know, the, the momentum at a dense core that, that uh, spins other things around it and it's always less and less dense outside of it, um, and that that, that that would be a good explanation or a good form. Um, and I was wondering if that wouldn't give us an indication since that's the form that takes place the most often of what the, give us some information about what the fundamental particles and how they behave are. Because it seems to me it's the momentum of all those things uh, merging, the way, the way it's described in a black hole, for example. Um, it's, it's not that dissimilar, even though, it's, even though it's, um, it looks special. Uh, it looks particularly different. So that structure, the, the question, that structure, is that, is, is that, an inaccurate observation, or is that kind of structure the most basic thing at most levels? 
so it, it's not it's not a universal that you find in all forces. It depends on the force. So it just if you think of an atom, um, then the force that's acting on the electrons is the electromagnetic force, which has this one over R square law. And uh, it's the same for the gravitational force. So they're actually quite similar. So in some sense, it's not really surprising um, that you would see similar structures. The reason in the end why atoms turn out to be more complicated uh, than um, you know, the solar system is that the quantum effects are just stronger because the whole thing is small. So, so Planck's constant um, comes in and kicks you and says, well, actually, you know, they're, they're not little balls moving on orbits around it, but you have to take into account that it's a wave function and it's actually blurry and has a probability distribution and blah, 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 all, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but, I mean, there, there are forces that work entirely differently. Um, for example, the strong nuclear force, um, the strong nuclear force um you know, as, as the name says, is strong. <laughs> so, uh, but it has this it has this weird property that's called uh, asymptotic freedom, which means it actually becomes weaker at short uh, distances or at, at, at high energies. Um, so, what happens if you um, take a, con a constituent of the atomic nucleus, like say a proton or something like this, and you try to pull the constituents apart, apart like the quarks, um, they'll, they'll try to get back together. And you can try to describe this um, force acting between them. And the analogy that people usually use is that it's kind of like a rubber band. Uh, so um, you have this rubber band force that becomes increasingly stronger with the distance. And that's very, very different to how gravity works, where the force actually, it falls with one over R square. So, so it's an entirely different thing. And then at some point, basically what happens is that you have so much energy in this rubber band that it snaps and you just have two separate parts. Uh, and, and so that's called fragmentation, but, but maybe that's a detail. So it's actually this kind of, this weird rubber bendry stringy structure that string theory was originally invented for to describe the, these tubes. So what I'm trying to aim at is that um, this property which you've observed uh, holds for the electromagnetic force and the gravitational force isn't, isn't generally true for all forces. We know exceptions to that. How about if you tell us a little bit about what your days like when you do your research in, in, in the superfluid dark matter? I mean, what, what are you working on right now and sort of what, are you, what is your group investigating? Yeah, so uh, lots of things, always, always lots of things. Um, so um, we've been trying to find a good way to, to systematically use the idea of the superfluid to describe how it distributes in galaxies, basically. Um, the idea is that at some point we might be able to tell at which stage in the history of galactic evolution, the superfluid starts to condense. So I, I think that that was pretty wild. Maybe I, I should start with giving you some, some, some background. So the, the, whole, the whole idea with the superfluid dark matter, which is, is not originally mine, it was put forward by um, Justin Curie 
uh, and his group um, is that um, you have a type of dark matter that condenses around galaxies and forms the superfluid in which there acts a new force that is mediated by the phonons in, in the superfluid. And that new force partly makes up for this effect that we normally assign to dark matter. And now you may you may wonder, well, why the heck would you want to do that? Isn't it enough if you have the gravitational force? But the thing is that, um, as I alluded to earlier, we have a lot of observations uh, in astrophysics and cosmology where this idea of this halo dark matter, the normal theory that's called cold dark matter, um, doesn't quite work. And the brief summary of the problems is that there are more patterns, there's more structure in the data than we can explain with particle dark matter. Or, I mean, you, you can <laughs> you can amend the theory to make it work, right? That, that's what that's what I uh, mentioned earlier. You can't really falsify it. You, you can always kind of fumble it <laughs> to fit to fit the prediction but the problem is that then it's no longer a simple explanation and so this superfluid idea has the great benefit that it provides a simple explanation for the patterns that we see which uh, to me makes it very appealing but then the question is how can you tell apart the superfluid dark matter from the from the normal cold dark matter? And uh, one of the things that seemed promising to me is that um, you could look back into the history of galactic evolution. And if this idea with the superfluid is right, at some point you should see a change where this um, phase transition happens in the superfluid forms. And in, in a model with cold dark matter, there shouldn't be uh, anything comparable. But to actually figure out exactly what happens and what are the observations uh, that you should be looking for, you have to first understand how the theory works uh, and um, how you calculate the pattern of the superfluid profile for arbitrary galaxies, spiral galaxies, elliptic galaxies, and so on and so forth. So, so that's what we're working on right now. Uh, let me see if I have this right. So we, we, we don't really have an idea. Of, I mean, we have an idea about dark matter and what it should be accomplishing, but of course we haven't seen it. Uh, but now there's a, a, a superfluid state of it, and, do we, and, and superfluidity usually is un, under some kind of extreme circumstances when it's done for matter that we're used to. So you're, you're, you're working with this superfluidity in dark matter. Um, what extreme circumstances or conditions are there that cause it to switch from it's normal clumping whatever to a superfluid state. Have you figured that out or, or, or are there theories about that? So the stuff is already very cold. So it decouples very early in the, in, in the early universe and then it just cools and it cools and cools. So it's ridiculously cold because it interacts very little with, with the normal matter. So it doesn't, it doesn't heat up. It's not like it's a sun or something. So it's just this really cold stuff that's sitting there. And uh, what what causes the phase transition is gravitational pressure. So it's it it, it falls down in the gravitational potential, and uh, the gravitational pressure uh, increases. And uh, somewhere on the size of galaxies, or at the strength of the gravitational potential that's caused by the galaxies, this phase transition has uh, to happen. Like so, so this is basically um, this is the assumption for this whole thing to work. Uh, so this phase transition has to be in the range uh, that you get the superfluid in in galaxies. O otherwise, it doesn't work. So, so that's 
that's the idea basically but yeah i mean you you're asking the right question you you would what you would actually want to know is exactly the circumstances under which the phase transition happens which is a hideously difficult question like even for you know if you take one of the best understood superfluids like uh, helium maybe or something like this you can't actually calculate um the where the phase transitions happen it's it's mostly observational and so we're, we're trying to find a simple way to just parameterize uh what's happening and then we ideally we can look at the data and try to figure out if the simple parameterization actually fits with the observations do you guys ever finish a week of work and and, and sit around and say, say how did we get here in just a hundred years that we, we we can make these uh, ideas about what's going on hundreds of millions of light years away from us and actually have enough evidence, etc., to 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 uh, to try to figure that out? I mean, it's really quite astounding that we that we have enough information based on our assumptions about the information we're getting uh, to be able to make those kind of predictions and then, yeah, and, then get a better, <laughs> and then get a better theory, you know. It's uh, not where not where we were a hundred years ago. Yeah, I, I flip flop back between it's so super amazing that we can do all this stuff, and why are we so dumb that we can't do anything better? <laughs> there's, <laughs> there, there, there's nothing in between, seemingly. No, well, that's well, that's the kind of co uh, you know conflict uh, that that keeps everybody going, the kind of friction that keeps everybody going between these two concepts, right? Between uh, you know, wow, it's so fantastic, but how come we can't be better? Um, to, to speaking of that, you, you end your book, or you, near the end of the book, you say, what does Sabina want to know? You know, I mean, I want to know, did the, how, did the or how did the universe begin? Um, is time made up of moments? Right? You had a couple of questions that you said, th these are the questions I would really like answered. Maybe those are the questions you had when you first went into physics. Um, but you mentioned them near the end of your book, I think, and... Uh, and uh, this one of them it does, is time made up of moments. Uh, you know, obviously that idea has been argued for a couple thousand years too. Uh, and and uh, now we have, uh, well, we're, we're almost away from film, celluloid film now too. But the celluloid film was a, was a, a way of uh, capturing with 32 frames per second, you know, something that looked like it was moving, but it really wasn't moving and therefore could give some evidence uh, that, that there was a series of time with, that, that could be just in moments and that there really was no coordination between them uh, other than maybe some divine intervention or whatever. Uh, but it seems to me that that, that idea really flies in the face of, of the conservation of, of, of uh, energy and momentum, right? If, if how could it move from, how could that be true unless somebody is tricking us? Every, if, if time is momentary, then someone's tricking us to make it look like it's not. And, and uh, either way, that's not a good idea. I mean, I w one wouldn't want there to be a trickster in charge. Uh, it's much better if there's rules, <laughs> at least as far as I'm concerned. Um, so so um, when you ask that question, do you feel that there's any uh, chance that it could just be made up of moments? So... Those are the questions, I think I listed them in the beginning, that I was originally interested in. Um, and so, you know, when when I started thinking about physics, I, I've always wondered, like, 
how could you possibly be able to tell the difference? Like if, if time was made of very, very short moments and if it's actually really continuous. And so today I would say that this idea that time is made of discrete moments, you know, of a, of a finite period is very, very difficult to make compatible with Einstein's theories of special and general relativity, which are very, very well confirmed. And I've actually, I've worked on this for a bit, you know, there are theories in which um, space is discrete and in which time is discrete and which both space and time are discrete. And uh, I'm, <laughs> I've pretty much given up on them. So, uh, and, and yes, energy conservation uh, is, is an issue in, in all these uh, theories, uh, basically, uh, because um, in a nutshell, the continuity of time is very strongly related uh, with energy conservation. Uh, but also in this case, I mean, you can ask how, how well have we actually measured that energy is really, really conserved? Like, can't you just say, well, maybe it's such a small violation of energy conservation that we wouldn't have measured it so far. And, you know, that that's a starting point. In the end, if you, if you walk it through, um, I think it, it, it does work. So at least personally, you know, that's the conclusion that I've come to. Um, and when we talk about time, to me, uh, of course, we're used to thinking of time the way we've divided it up in minutes, seconds, and, and milliseconds, etc. Um, but it seems to me our arbitrary uh, measurement of the of the continuum of change, and the continuum of change is fairly easy to understand, uh, more easy to understand, in that w there's quadrillions of particles all moving in different directions at the same time, and there's no way to, at least with the, with the with the uh, conservation of momentum, etc. As you said. There's no way to, to, to stop the whole picture and then start it again and then stop the whole picture and start it again unless, unless you, you, you put in all that energy each time. You know? Each time you'd have to kick the momentum of each of those quadrillions of particles. Um, anyway, uh, so, so what, now, that you've, now that you've gotten past that major question, um, you, you, do you have any other questions that are at the top of your, I mean, obviously the dark matter questions, but do you have any other big questions that, that you're, just, just for those of you who haven't seen her YouTube channel, she'll, she'll explain everything about a particular thing in 10 minutes and make it much clearer than, than uh, if, maybe if you're not a physicist, if you're not a physicist, it'll be much clearer than it was before. You do a great job at that. So what is it that, that um, keeps your mind in the big picture wondering about? that keeps you moving on that, not just on the dark matter level, but on the whole thing of, of why you're still interested in physics and why, why you want to explain this to everybody as clearly as possible. So, so one of the things that keeps me up at night is we briefly talked about this earlier. It's like, what's, what's up with this wave function? You know, what, what's really going on in quantum mechanics? Because to me, it's just such a, we know it's an element of nature, right? We, we know that something about it is right, but we also know that, this doesn't quite work. There has to be something else. And so this, this is also something uh, that I'm working on. Um, like, can, can we finally maybe please make sense of quantum mechanics? <laughs> <laughs> well, to go to the wave particle duality theory, which has been around for a long time, trying to make sense of, of photons uh, and radiation. If we backed away from this, our solar system so that we were far enough, uh, the Earth is spinning and it's also going around the sun, 
And, and, and wouldn't, wouldn't that look like, if you were far enough away, wouldn't the earth going around the sun look more like a wave function rather than an ellipse around the, the sun? No, the wave function wouldn't look like that. Uh, I made a video about this, It wouldn't this, look like a way. wave function? <laughs> uh, no, it wouldn't. It's just that, you see, the physics isn't scale invariant. So the actual physical masses and sizes of things make a difference. Uh, an atom is really different to the solar system. So if you, if you were to calculate the wave function, um for 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 an electron or something you would actually find it has these really blurry orbits uh, that come in shells or in in in, in you know different uh, belts or, or something like this whereas the earth is really a fairly localized object that actually pretty much exactly moves on a path and and just by um going away from the solar system you, you wouldn't change anything about this about that function all right, well, um, we're near the end, but uh, just, just as an example of, of uh, how things have changed uh, when I was in college, so this is 1973, um, one of my friends was getting his PhD in physics at the time, and he was using uh, one of the new big computers because John Kemeny uh, uh, was the, one of the founders of BASIC, was the president of our school, so they had given him a big computer, and this uh, physics professor, I'm a, I'm a PhD student, was using it. Um, and he was calculating just what you were talking about. Where would the electrons be in an aluminum atom under certain circumstances? And the program that he wrote to make each calculation uh, required 20 hours of running on the computer to come up with one of those locations. Um, and I, I think, I'm sure it could be done on an iPhone today, I'm, I, I'm guessing, but maybe, maybe that's an exaggeration, but pretty close. Um, and so... And that's, you know, well within my lifetime, we're talking about 50 years ago. Um, and uh, so uh, obviously the changes are going to keep going on. The cooler tools that we have, uh, the more we're going to be able to keep, you know, getting those fine things. So what are you hoping to see, as a, a last question, what are you hoping to see get answered, you know, sooner rather than later? Like in the next 10 years, do you, do you think of anything in physics as, as we're going to breach that and, and, and make progress in a particular area? So I certainly hope that we will finally see evidence that gravity is actually quantized. Um, maybe not in 10 years, but 20, I think is reasonable. So hopefully within my lifetime, if I'm lucky. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I think that's kind of on the horizon. Um, so I'm, I'm quite optimistic about this. Of course, I also hope that we will finally figure out what dark matter is, um, though I suspect it might it might take a little longer. It's just such a it's it's just a multifaceted problem with all these different observations that it's it's really really difficult. Not to mention, the only way we can observe it is from far far away. <laughs> I mean, you well, know, not, there, there's nothing. Is, is there anything? Is there anything on Earth that you observe that helps you understand dark matter, or, or, or is it just based on observations of galactic behavior? Well, that depends what it's made of, or you know, may, maybe it's not made of anything, but maybe it's a modification of gravity. But it, if it's made of something, like if it's a particle, uh, in principle, you could actually detect the particles. Like there are lots of experiments that have looked for it; they haven't found anything. But it may just be we've we've done the wrong experiments, you know. Maybe maybe we should have been looking for something else. All right. Well, we have 
just a couple of questions that came in. So why, why don't we do that here? Let's see. Uh, this comes from Professor Edward Frankel. Um, I wonder what Professor Hossenfeller's view of this issue is. In a recent review of a book about uh, Hawking by James Gleick, I was struck by this quote. The theory of everything is a false idol. Why should the universe, which grows more gloriously complex the more we see, be reducible to one set of equations and formula? The point of science is not the holy grail, but the quest, the searching and the asking. So, do you, do you, do you think that that is, is um, or, or, or do you think that the theory of everything or, or, or an answer uh, is, is really the holy grail and we should go for it? Well, <laughs> yes or no. Uh, so we, sh we should definitely uh, go for it, uh, but it's not the holy grail. Um, so th this term theory of everything uh, it has been, you know, it's, it's, it's very inaccurate. Um, physicists on the foundation of physics mean something very specific uh, with it, which uh, is that it combines um, gravity with the standard model and unifies the forces in the standard model. It, it does not, as the name suggests, actually explain everything um, in, in the sense that for most practical purposes, it would be utterly useless. Like, I mean, if you want to develop a vaccine, just to name a completely random example, that, that theory of everything would be totally, utterly useless. Um, but, uh, I mean, we, we know, as, as I said, that there's something wrong with just throwing together general relativity with the standard model. So we need something more. And uh, that's why I think a quest for theory of everything is reasonable, and we certainly should go after it. Yeah, it's um, one of the things that I, I find interesting in the whole field of scientific and, and philosophical endeavor that's based on reason, that is, is that we're trying to get as close an idea about reality as we can get for us to apply ourselves you know, better. And, and now that we have millions of people working on it instead of 10 or 15, if you go back 2,000 years, um, we're making progress in lots of fields. And I find it very interesting where you can take a whole field and say, uh, the metaphysical structure in which we explain life is irrelevant to this whole area. And we can, we can figure out everything we need to know, even about our personalities, for example, or something like that, regardless of whether we were created or not created or whether we, you know, all the different possibilities. We can find the patterns because all the patterns that are most useful are part of our every moment reality. It's, it's inherent in, the, in, in what's going on and therefore should be useful regardless of what the superstructure is. But the superstructure uh, would, the clearer that gets, the easier it is, I think, to clarify the different pieces of it. So, um, so I liked your answer to the theory of everything. We still go for it, but the quest is the fun, uh, is, is obviously the fun part. And we can, we've made so much progress in such a short amount of time. Um, let's hope that, that, that millions and more people get involved in it and we get even faster along the, the line. So thank you very much, uh, Sabina, for joining us from uh, Frankfurt, Germany. Um, it was a great pleasure talking to you. And uh, let us know uh, if, if uh, that answer about dark matter comes up while you're still alive. <laughs> Thanks again. And so ends another event at the Commonwealth Club in its 119th year of enlightened discussion. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. 
Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.